not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. Not looking for excuses, I just want to be free from the power weakness had on me. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Bubble Hour, where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. I'm Jean McCarthy. I write the blog Unpickled, where I've been telling my story of life after alcohol since my first day of sobriety in 2011. I tell my story there, and I invite you to share your stories here. You know, one of the best things about doing this podcast is I get to meet all kinds of interesting people who I would never find otherwise. And today's guest is no exception. Her name is Gigi Langer, and she is a really interesting, wise, funny, warm, delightful woman. She has had 34 years of sobriety. Now, what's interesting is that even though Gigi had both a master's in psychology and a PhD in psychological studies and education, she still found herself struggling with alcohol and relationships and a reliance on her professional accomplishments to sort of soothe her frayed nerves and deal with her anxiety. And it wasn't until she approached with honesty and determination her relationship with alcohol and drugs that her life really began to change and she healed things that she did not even know needed addressing. I think you'll really enjoy my discussion with her today. Her book is called 50 Ways to Worry Less Now. And here's my discussion with Gigi Langer. Gigi Langer, thank you for being on the Bubble Hour. Hello and welcome. I'm so happy to be here, Jean. Thank you. It's a pleasure to meet you, and I'm really looking forward to hearing your story and getting to know you. Thank you. Me too. Well, let's jump right into it. Tell us about yourself and tell us how it is that you came to be a person who qualifies (laughs) for the bubble hour. (laughs) (laughs) My name is Gigi Langer, and I definitely qualify for the bubble hour. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, yeah, I'm a person in long-term recovery, which means I haven't had a drink or a drug uh, for 34 years. So I'm very grateful for that. I am retired now, but I worked as uh, for 25 years as a teacher and a teacher of teachers. I was a college professor of education, and um, now I'm happily married to my fourth husband. We've been married for 30 years, and I live uh, in Florida and Michigan with him and my cat. I don't have any children because I couldn't stay married long enough. <laughs> You'll learn more about that in a minute. Um but I did, I did grow up in a family that had alcoholism in it. My dad was what you would call a high-functioning, you know, 50s, 60s, uh, high-functioning alcoholic. He uh, went to the bar almost every night with his buddies. Uh, and my mom would sit home and worry and worry and make dinner and be depressed. And I was the youngest of four. And uh, so I kind of grew up with a very distracted mother who had other things on her mind. Um, and I I just felt like I didn't deserve much attention. I felt a little lost. And I think that combined with being a little more of a highly sensitive person, uh, easily overwhelmed by social uh, stimulus and 
easily, uh, I don't know, stressed and just a little overactively sensitive. <laughs> um, it kind of made me a little more vulnerable, I think, to um, seeking alcohol to cure what ailed me. Um, the first thing I found, though, when I was young was grades. I thought if I could do really well in school, then maybe I would be worth people's attention. And uh, that seemed to work for a while, but <laughs> then then I discovered boys. <laughs> So really, in high school and college, I drank very little. Um, I didn't discover marijuana till later. Um, my main addiction was boys. You know, I would uh, fall in love and make the man my, or the boy, my, in a way, my higher power or the most important thing in my life. I had a few episodes, you know, drinking in high school and being deathly ill and one time in college, you know, doing things I really couldn't believe I'd done the next day, but those were pretty isolated incidents. And um, it was around uh, after college when I got my first teaching job and I fell in love with the music teacher. And uh, after a couple of years, that was not working out for reasons I don't really want to divulge for his uh, privacy. Uh, but that was like, you know, my dream of the picket fence and the two children and the perfect life. That divorce just kind of broke that all open and, and I felt like a complete and utter failure. And uh, I that's when I discovered marijuana that did not make me sick and did take away the pain. So shortly after that, I met another man, <laughs> got married very quickly. We traveled together quite a bit, um, and we kind of agreed that when we didn't want to live together anymore, we would dissolve the marriage. So during that time, again, there was the isolated incident, but um, I did start smoking marijuana more, but I still got pretty sick when I drank very much alcohol. Um, and after all those failures, I was finishing graduate school. I was about 35 and uh, I met the man who became my third husband and he just seemed like the right guy, you know, had his act together and so on. I had just finished um, grad school in psychological studies and education. And so I moved to Michigan and we got married quite quickly. So that was my third divorce. I mean, third marriage. It did end in divorce eventually. And that was due to my drinking and alcohol use because uh, much to my shock, within nine months of marrying him, I started going, he was travel quite a bit for his work. So I started going out to bars all alone in Michigan, didn't know a soul, go to a bar, find a guy, pick him up, go home, find marijuana, sleep with them. And I just could not believe that I was doing this behavior. You know, here I had this doctorate in my hand and a really good job. And on the other hand, I had this private little seedy life that was very, um, that I was ashamed of, but I couldn't seem to stop doing it. So, you know, I would lied to him, of course. And, um, I tried a couple of ways to stop that behavior, but nothing was working. And finally, I um, 
went to a psychologist and I, I, you know, I said, look, what, what is wrong with this picture? <laughs> you know, I'm in my third marriage. I'm barely 35 years old, 36. And, you know, I'm doing this. And he got the history and he said, you're in the early stages of alcoholism. And, um, I found that hard to believe. I guess I was around 37 then, but here's what he asked me to do. He said, have two drinks, no more, no less, and see if you can do that. And so I continued seeing him. Um, and he, you know, he did not tell me you're an alcoholic. He just said, do this experiment. And I think it was three to six months where I did the experiment. And sometimes I would have two drinks and stop. And other times I would have two drinks, three drinks, four drinks, find the guy, find the marijuana, go home with a stranger. And eventually it became clear to me that if I had even one drink, I couldn't predict what I was going to do if I was going to endanger myself or someone else. So I had a also an evaluation. Um, my third husband was confronting me quite a bit. And uh, I went to a hospital and got an evaluation. You know, I'll show you, I'll get an evaluation. Well, <laughs> the guy looked at me because both of us were there. And he said, you know, you have a, a problem and it's a fatal disease and it's only going to get worse if you don't do something about it. And uh, that got my attention. So uh, January 11th of 1986, I walked into my first 12-step meeting and there were a bunch of guys there. Um, the room was full of smoke. Um, but what I heard them talking about, you know, the shame and the loathing and not being able to stop and trouble with relationships, and I, I could relate completely. And I, I kept going to maybe two meetings a week, sometimes three, for about six months. I didn't get a sponsor. You know, I didn't think I was worth anyone's time and attention. And... Um, I also was quite shocked at the level of um, honesty. I, I really was afraid that if I got really honest and tore the Band-Aid off my wounds, that all the dark, ugly, painful stuff that I had a sense was inside of me, that I had been drinking and sexing to cover up. I was afraid if I ripped the Band-Aid off and got into a recovery program, really, that it would all come gushing out at once and overwhelm me. And that would be the end of me. It would take me down. So it took me quite a bit of time to commit to doing the steps, but eventually I did. And I, I was in, you know, 12 step rooms because in 1986, that was pretty much the main way you got sober. Um, so I asked a woman to be my sponsor. She said, yes. And, um, I started working the steps. I was extremely reluctant to buy any kind of a higher power concept. I had tried to become a Christian a couple of times, and of course, all I could focus on was the the negativity and what I labeled as hypocrisy. <laughs> um, but what I found really was that the women that I met in the program were streaming toward me this loving care and non-judgment that I really had not experienced very much before. 
and they didn't want to control me. They didn't want to get my money. They didn't want me to go to X number of this and that. They just, you know, loved me and said, keep coming back. Um, so I, I worked through the steps and I'm very grateful to say that my nightmare that the Band-Aid would be ripped off and all the stuff would come out all at once, uh, that did not happen. It Eventually, I had a concept of a higher power who took good care of me and directed me often through other people and their loving care, healthy other people. And um, so it actually happened in layers. The first time I did the steps, I dealt with my own alcoholism and drug use and promiscuity and, uh, you know, got to go through the steps with that and admit my part and admit that, you know, I, and with therapy and I had a wonderful therapist, I, I realized that I was just doing the best I could to take care of myself. And I thought that those things would help ease the pain. Um, a few years later, the next layer, maybe a year or two later, later was the whole, um, growing up in an alcohol affected family and all the um, characteristics of an adult child of alcoholic homes. That list, when I first read it, it really shocked me. And, um, you know, because all my pattern with dysfunctional relationships and making a man my higher power and overachieving and perfectionism and on and on and on, um, I thought, oh my God, this is who I am. You know, I thought it labeled me permanently. But then they said... Um, you're not to blame for what happened in your past, but you are responsible to heal it. And I went to some of the 12-step meetings for adult children of alcoholics and learned through those people that, yes, I could heal those patterns. I did not have to uh, repeat them. About that time, I was uh, going through couples counseling with my third husband, but he wouldn't show up a lot of the time. And um, after a year of sobriety, I decided that I really didn't want to spend the rest of my life with him. And so, you know, with my therapist and my sponsor and so on, I, I we had a trial separation and, and so on and, and did end up divorcing. So for the first time in my life, I spent a year not in any relationship I had my own little house. I lived alone for the first time. And um, I then I met Peter, my current husband, and, oh, I was terrified because I felt no confidence in my ability to be healthy in a relationship. But I was staying sober. I was getting female friends, um, healthy female friends to hang out with. I was going to therapy. And um, through therapy, I started um, discovering other modes of healing, like energy work. And in addition to the cognitive therapy, of course, there were the spiritual practices. And I started branching off and discovering other spiritual writings and practices, which you know, really helped me trust that there was a true self inside me that is essentially good and just got kind of covered up by all my fear and, uh, and unhappiness. 
So that was a um, a big growth period because soon after that, I <laughs> discovered that there had been um, some inappropriate touching in my childhood. And I, I think that was the thing that was way down there that I was terrified of. And, you know, the way my higher power and my friends helped me grow, I did not even know that that had happened until about four or five years sober. And by that time I was, you know, I had enough of a support group and, uh, um, and coping strategies to handle that. I mean, it wasn't easy, but I had a, a great therapist. Um, so there was a lot of healing. And the one thing I do know is that my journey here is really about uncovering those things, uh, clearing away those things that have blocked my heart or that have blocked my light or my true self uh, from shining in the world. And so um, I've continued discovering ways, you know, I'm, I am kind of a highly anxious, prone to worry person. <laughs> and so I've learned lots of ways of overcoming my my kind of uh, default setting of negativity. And I have to say that, that right now I am um, a pretty happy camper. <laughs> Even though today's context is this um, being, you know, isolated for this virus, um, you know, I have a support group that I connect with via um, technology, and what I what I said that one time that gave me the ultimate security was when I realized that if the worst of the worst of the worst happened in my life that I would have a group of women surrounding me who would be streaming love into me, even if I couldn't believe it existed. And this isn't, at least in my own home personally right now, devastating us. And yet it's still really difficult to see so many people's lives being uh, shattered by it. So, um, you know, meeting with my friends and praying and meditating um, I also write a blog um, to help uplift people, and I've been doing that for a couple of years. I like to do uh, talks and retreats. I do a um, retreat on step six and seven uh, based on the book Drop the Rock, and I love doing that. Um, you know, I, I just, I, I do the daily work to keep myself free of worry and fear and resentment. And I am very grateful that the dominant factor in my life at this point, right, however, and I can't say it'll always be that way, but right now I do feel um, serene and uh, connected to a source of wisdom and healthy and connected with people I love. And um, I've been able to fulfill some dreams that I didn't even know I had. <laughs> so that's my life so far. And um, I'm very grateful to have had the tools to become a healthy, high-functioning person rather than the miserable, sad woman I was when I started the journey. Thank you. Thank you, Gigi. Uh, 
34 years of sobriety, um, does it get to be routine? Does it ever get boring? Are you always learning things about yourself? Uh, yes, I am because I, I take, I, I have a conversation on the phone or in person with my sponsor every two weeks and she's the different sponsor than I had before. Uh, but that connects me with, um, it gets me honest having that level of conversation. If there's something, you know, I, I have gone back to therapy periodically when I was worried excessively about something or had a blockage. I've, I've sought out energy work too. Um, but it, I never take it for granted because I know I, I need to do my daily footwork, I call it, to keep my head screwed on straight, basically, because I am a person prone to worry and fear and resentment. <laughs> and that is really what's underneath addiction for a lot of us, isn't it? I mean, that's really what the steps yeah. are all about is healing those. You mentioned uh, retreats that... Uh, focus on step six and seven. Now, not all of our listeners are familiar with the 12-step program. So can you explain what those steps are and what that process is all about? Sure. Um, well, the 12 steps have the middle is called the house cleaning. You know, the first thing is like, <laughs> get honest, trust God, and then you got to clean up your side of the street. What have I been doing? What's my part in making my life so miserable? And um, so after we do the famous inventory, <laughs> which you've heard about on TV and shows, you know, um, we look at where we were at fault. And, and, it, and there's also a part that helps us look at what need were we trying to fulfill when we did our negative behavior? Was I trying to improve my prestige or was I trying to um, getting my improve my emotional security by using those men? Um, what, what need of mine was I trying to fill? And in step six, it's, um, they talk about character defects or shortcomings. And these are the habits that I've had of using other people to fulfill my selfish needs or using my career in perfectionism and ambition to make myself feel more comfortable. And so these character defects are usually around selfishness and, and trying to overcome fear. And um, I think of them as soft spots. You know, it's a tender spot for me. And, uh, but it can be healed and it doesn't have to become a trigger every time. So you learn these things about yourself. For example, in my case, be, you know, perfectionism, trying to do everything perfectly and hating making mistakes. Um, in step seven, you acknowledge that if you hang on to this character defect, of course, if we're judging ourselves, we also judge others. So the more perfectionistic I am, the more I'm perfectionistic with others, and I judge them and push them away and criticize and so on. I can't be happy that way. I can't be connected in love with my uh, people in my life. So in seven, we become entirely willing to ask our higher power to remove this way of acting from me um, so that I don't do damage. 
and that I'm more able to give and receive love. So those are the two steps. You know, I really like the way that you soften the language around them because I I find, and I, I know I'm not the only one, I think females in particular sometimes get a little prickly around um, the 12-step program because the language is pretty can be pretty harsh. So something like character defects, for example, can be, you know, can feel really judgmental and um, uh, critical. And to, to think of it as soft spots in need of, of care, extra care, is a really loving way to look at, at these issues that we have or these, these parts of ourselves that we're trying to resolve. So I really love the language that you apply around that. It's just so gentle and caring. Um, Thank you. You have a book. Your book is called 50 Ways to Worry Less Now. And in fact, there was a, a section I was just reading last night. One part that you talked about is when we do the, the go through the process of sort of listing out resentments or um, I haven't worked a 12-step program. I do go to 12-step meetings for the fellowship, mm-hmm. but I've never done the 12 steps myself. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm, I'm definitely on the side of knowing what they are, but not having sort of personal experience with them. But sure. understandings that um, step four, as you, you mentioned earlier, is the taking of an inventory. And, and what that means, to my understanding, and feel free to flesh out better <laughs> how I'm explaining it, mm. um, but it really means looking at not just things you've done in the past that you're not proud of, but also resentments that you have and then what they say about you, and what that helps you to reveal. So really, there's so sort of that old, I think it's really goes back far as like a Buddhist saying, I think of, you know, show me what angers you and I'll show you what you're afraid of. Is that how it is? Or I'll, you know, when we, the things we criticize in others are the things we fear about ourselves. And Mm. so these things that we are listing is really an exploration of, of our own, as you say, soft spots. I love that language around it. Mm. Anyway, you, you kind of encourage people to go a little bit further and try to learn like what old lies, what old fears do those things tell us about ourselves? So can Mm. you talk a little bit more about that and how we do that? Sure. Um, I'll stick with the example of perfectionism. So um, I don't know how it came to me. It's some people talk about the oh so helpful committee in my head that's always saying, you know, you're a piece of <laughs> rotten dirt and what's wrong with you. And it's the some people call it the critical parent voice. Um, but that that negative self-talk I call whispered lies. And so if my, um, if I look at my fourth step and realize that, um, boy, I'm, you know, angry at this person who was supposed to help me with technology and I got all screwed up and I was making mistakes and I hate making mistakes as I'm perfectionistic. And eventually I work it through and talk with my sponsor and realize that Underneath the perfectionism is the whispered lie that says, if I'm not perfect, I won't be loved. Because back in the home I grew up in, the one area I found I could feel good was getting good grades. And that was something I got praised for, whereas the rest of the time I felt kind of like brushed to the side. So there's the whispered lie you know, I must be perfect or I won't be loved. I won't be taken care of. I'll, you know, you take it all the way to the logical conclusion. It's a scary thought. 
But, um, and there's neurolink, you know, neuro uh, science involved in this too, because those negative self messages get grooved into the neuro uh, pathways and the mental programming. And so even when something uh, seems like it might cause me to make a mistake, even if it isn't a real mistake, the old whispered lie gets activated. And so um, for me, it's a matter of saying, oh yeah, look at that. I do have that little hangover thought, you know, of, and of course my, I have to say between there and here, I did a lot of therapy, um, and and in my book, I, I share the entire journey and the tools that were used, but um, some of the inner child healing, you know, where I, I was able to say, you know, you, <laughs> you're loved and, <laughs> and cared for, whether you make a mistake or not, honey, you know. <laughs> um, so now I'm able to say, oh, man, and I do make a lot of mistakes with technology because after writing this book, I've been you know, I'm kind of tight with money, so I've been doing all the marketing myself. And uh, that implies learning a lot of technology and creating a website and all that. So I've been making lots of mistakes, and it's been a great opportunity for me to, you know, learn to accept the fact that uh, it has nothing to do with my self-worth or anything. It's just the thing is hard to do. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of one example. It's, it's a fairly tame one. <laughs> and a, but a fairly common one. Oh, gosh, I've, mm-hmm. uh, I've heard the word perfectionism more times in recovery than in my previous years combined. Um, it just mm. is such a common issue. And mm-hmm. I, I was going to mention, there's a few other things you talked about that are, are things I often hear from guests of this show in their story. And that is being overly sensitive as a child, being boy crazy or promiscuous. These um, in themselves aren't necessarily precursors to addiction, but I wonder um, if they are they if they're more common among people that have addiction, and if so, is that codependency? Is that are those all sort of symptoms of something that set us up for addiction? Or what's your take on that? I, I would deal with it in two parts because the highly sensitive part um, I refer in my book to uh, I, Elaine Aron, A-R-O-N. She's a researcher. She wrote one of the first books about um, introversion and highly sensitive people. And um, the big bestseller that came out later is called Quiet. Oh, yeah. And, mm-hmm. um, but it, it, it combines a lot of the, um, well, anyway, what she, when I found her book, it was like, oh, thank you, God, there is an explanation. Because I grew up in a family where everybody was out there and, and I was quiet and I read books and I, and I was sensitive and I, and I got sick a lot. And I always felt like this high maintenance kid that was faulty. And um, and I always felt things a lot. And when I read, I, Eileen, or I think it's Eileen Aaron, A-R-O-N, her research on the highly sensitive person, uh, it listed exactly who I was. And, uh, and she, she said one out of five in her research is 
one out of five people is what she would term a highly sensitive person who's easily startled, can't have TV going on constantly in the background, easily overwhelmed with a lot of social stimulus, needs their own quiet time, uh, senses other people's feelings quite a bit, and so on. And finally, I felt like, oh, I'm not just a you know high maintenance diva, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. I'm a person who's highly sensitive. And what I loved about her book was she said that one those one in five people, although it's hard to learn to live with that sensitivity, once they do, they often become the sages and the wise advisors in their cultures and communities. So I thought, oh, wow, so there's even an upside, you know. But I have to say that addiction, I, it's logical that a person who senses the world in... Um, you know, high def, louder and more um, disturbing than most people, of course that person would seek relief through drugs and alcohol or anything that would, you know, drown the noise a little bit. Um, I think the the boy crazy thing... Um, You know, I'm sure there are people who are boy crazy who aren't highly sensitive, but certainly making a boy into one's end all and be all of being is highly encouraged through the songs and the TV and the movies and so on in our culture that, you know, you're not complete unless you have one to complete you. And and that is just of basically a bunch of hogwash. It's lovely to have another partner, but uh, those relationships do not thrive without us being our own complete whole person. <laughs> and mm-hmm. That you know, for me to realize that, it, I took a lot of crashing and burning um, before I realized that I had to grow up. Uh, so I think the boy crazy thing is a little different. Um, but I, the final thing is, I think um, that addiction is highly correlated with mild or severe cases of anxiety and depression. If you go into a 12-step meeting and you privately ask people to do a completely private answer of whether they're on medication or not, you would find a high proportion of people who probably are. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of us that um, try to use alcohol to self-medicate anxiety or depression and it it works at first (laughs) in the short term so that's deceiving and uh and is the trap is set for us because we thought we think we found the solution and we haven't i don't know if you're familiar with the work of dr scott haltzman but he uh writes a lot about infidelity and he he theorizes that alcoholics have a particular response to romance and sexuality sometimes he calls it a flame addiction because it lights Mm. up the same pleasure reward circuitry that their drug of choice might light up and so Mm. he, he he has done some work around um the idea that um in particular when it comes to infidelity that an addict or an alcoholic has to treat it in the same way that they treat an addiction because it's really hitting their brain differently. Uh, And I've always found that quite interesting too. Yeah. When my 
you know, the people in the 12 step room said, don't get into a, you know, a, a relationship for a year. Um, some people take it as far as celibacy, you know, but don't use that sexual attraction thing to get your eye off the ball of your own recovery and becoming healthy. And it's a big temptation. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. And distraction. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, you mentioned when you first started going to recovery meetings that there, um, they were, there was men there. Did you then gravitate towards women's meetings or have you always gone to mixed meetings? No, I definitely gravitated towards women's meetings. You know, it's ironic when I was, um, using my best buddies were men. I I did, you know, all my sports I did with men, I would have one female friend and she was usually my using buddy. So in the different eras of my life, I would have, you know, the only female friends I had was someone who would use with me, get high, go drive, take photographs or go to the bar. And so I did not trust women uh, because before I got sober, I knew how to manipulate men, but I couldn't really use the same buttons to manipulate women. So when I got into recovery and they said, you know, get a female sponsor or a person who has no, uh, you know, romantic attraction to you, um, that might be, again, part of why it took me six months just to learn to trust women or to to learn to become myself with women and that no one would attack me for being myself. Um, and I love women's meetings. I, I think the, I've benefited from both, but my posse, my tribe that I would call on if things got really awful, it, it is all women. It was interesting that your therapist sent you out and said, go try having two drinks and stop. Mm-hmm. Do you, was that an invitation to sort of empower you to diagnose yourself as having uh, an alcohol addiction? Or was it a suggestion to moderate? Or tell me more about that and what you think he was going for with, in doing that <laughs> and, and how it worked, <laughs> in your opinion. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, the... I mean, denial is the number one symptom. And then if you have it running in your family, that's another warning sign. But until a person convinces themselves that they have a problem, they're not going to do anything with it. And even though my relationships were in shambles, you know, I still, I had gotten through grad school by smoking dope every night and going to the bar. So, you know, all of a sudden I had a, a, an addiction problem. But when I got to Michigan after that, um, it wasn't an every night thing. So I, uh, it, it even says in the literature of Alcoholics Anonymous that you go ahead and, you know, try controlled drinking. If you're able to have two drinks, maybe even three regular sized drinks and not have any more, and it's not causing problems in your life, then you probably don't have a problem. But if you have the first drink and the second drink, and in my case, sometimes stop and other times don't, because I was kind of confounded by it. How could I be an alcoholic if there were times when I'd only have one or two drinks and stop? Everybody else said, oh, I have one drink and it sets me off and I'm completely addicted. That wasn't my picture. 
So my hunch is, yeah, he wanted me to convince myself that if I had even one drink, I would put my life or someone else's uh, at risk. Mm -hmm. And did that become clear to you? Oh, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You talked as well about um, some old memories resurfacing. And I recall having um, a Reiki or something like that one time. And mentioning that I was fearful of, I felt, I've often felt like I have some memory that I don't know what it is and, and I'm fearful of it being unlocked. And, um, the, the person said to me, you know, don't worry because your mind is protecting you by keeping it away. So it doesn't, it won't release it if there's something there until you're ready for it. Do you feel like that's true? And was that the case for you? Oh, Yeah. Yeah, I I don't know, this higher power thing can be weird for people, but basically we all need something that's bigger than the fears that our mind makes up or the resentments that our brains want to, you know, chew on over and over again. We need something bigger than that, whether it's uh, the true self inside or higher power outside or, um, and the, you know, the reason... I bring that up is because um, the thinking was just a complete problem for me of finding the negativity. And remind me of your your exact question. I'm sorry, Jean. I just I got off on a tangent. No, your tangent is good. I was curious about the process of uncovering memories, ah, and if you yes. feel like <laughs> like you were. Um, you protected yourself from those memories until you were ready to process them and understand them. Isn't that great? Because, oh, that's not a soft spot for me. When you ask about it, I forget about the question. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. And I wrote about it. I wrote about it in chapter five of my book and I needed to go get uh, Reiki and energy work and so on to be able to write that chapter because uh, it was not easy to write about it, but um, I do believe that we have a self-protective mechanism that is that's for good, um, and I do believe that this higher power or true self or our ultimate wisdom or the universe does help us um, either stay closed up or open up. You know if. If part of my life path was to be able to write about and talk about how my dad touched me and how my sisters laughed about it, um, then it was going to it was gonna open up my memory to remember it. And I, I happened to be in a very well, once I had and I didn't have a distinct memory, um, but it it became clear when I saw a show on date rape and the next day I was with my sponsor and we were taking a walk and I said oh you know I saw this show and it was so great and I, I what a what an awful thing to have happened to you and boy I'm glad nothing like that ever happened to me and then I could feel my stomach like in the elevator drop and I thought whoa something must have happened you know and I immediately got a therapist uh, who dealt with um, sexual trauma 
And then she had a group that I participated in. And, and I tell the story quite extensively of the healing for that um, in the book, because one of the things I learned was I didn't have to scratch the scab by trying to recover every single detail. What's clear is that my boundaries were trespassed against, right? Mm-hmm. And the feelings of powerlessness that I had then taken on myself, that I was at the mercy and a victim of the world that could do whatever it wanted with me because I couldn't protect myself. That was the mindset that it had left me with. And it was that mindset that I needed to then deal with and the feelings around it. Thank you for explaining that because it's not easy to talk about. I can hear that in your voice. Mm-hmm. And, um, and as you say, you're, even as we're talking about it, your, your mind is actively wanting to protect you <laughs> from it, which is interesting. Um, we, we are almost out of time. So before we go, tell me how our listeners can find you, learn more about you, connect with you if they'd like, and uh, read your book. Well, that would be wonderful. I love connecting with people, and um, I'm not too busy to do it. I only wrote this one book. It's called 50 Ways to Worry Less Now, and there's more to the title, But and it's by me, G-I-G-I, Langer, L-A-N-G-E-R. And the easiest way, I, it's in audiobook and ebook and paperback. And um, on my website, which is G-I-G-I-L-A-N-G-E-R.com, it's, um, you can see my blogs and you can learn more about me and you'll find a place to buy any of the books. And um, there's a contact form on gglanger.com that you can send me. And for the listeners of this particular podcast, I would like to offer a free token to the audio book of 50 Ways to Worry Less Now. And all you would have to do is uh, use the contact form on my website, gglanger.com. That's wonderful. Thank you so much. What a lovely gift. Mm -hmm. Now, before I let you go, I'm just wondering if you have any words of encouragement. This this particular time in history, we are living through something that I I feel like we will forever be changed when this is all done. Mm -hmm. Right now, a lot of people seem to be especially struggling in their homes. Anyone that was trying to get sober and finds themselves now confined might be finding it really hard. I'm just wondering if you have some words of encouragement for anyone who's struggling with alcohol and wants to find some success in taking their power back. Yeah. In a way, this period of time with people having to turn toward technology to connect is perfect for the person who wants to get sober or is early in the process. Because not only do you have Twitter and Facebook and the other social media sites, but you can just put in Google AA meeting online and this whole host of meetings will come up. Uh, One site is called In The rooms.com in the rooms and that's just a website and that it lists all its um, meetings and then um, zoom has been a wonderful tool for a lot of people to have meetings 
And again, if you wanted to join a beginner's meeting, I can direct you to one um, that some of my friends put on in Michigan. And it's a, a Zoom meeting, but the technology is almost 95%, 99% of the people who try to get into a meeting with Zoom are able to do it no matter how <laughs> comfortable they are with technology. I would listen to podcasts like this one, The Bubble Hour. Um, just flood your mind if you're struggling. Flood your mind with stuff about hope, staying sober, any spiritual. I've been reading these great uh, books about Father Tim by an author named Jan Caron, K-A-R-O-N, and it's called the Mitforge series, M-I-T-F-O-R-D. And they are so hopeful and uplifting and lovely. They, you know, reading is a great way of distracting myself from what's going on. And this book fills me with happiness and joy and hope. So, yeah, we can all live through this. I think the key is, you know, holding hands virtually while we um, face anything in life. We just can't do it alone. So come on and join us. <laughs> it's good out here. <laughs> oh, that's a warm invitation for certain. And also, uh, I know I was in a, a online meeting um, last week and one of the ladies just, she covered the camera on her computer with a little sticky note because she didn't, you know, she wanted to not be seen. Um, you can also just turn the camera off, but if you really want to know for sure that no one, you know, so you, it's a chance if you're, if you're curious about what a meeting is like to just listen and, you know, really be kind of a fly on the wall. And that's, that's welcome. I mean, that's partly what we're here for is to, is to share, uh, our hope and to, to hold space for other people to explore recovery. So yeah, I think that, yeah. that's a great idea to um, to jump in and try those things. Well, thank you so much, Gigi. It has really been lovely to get to know you a little bit and to hear your story today. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure. And uh, I feel a nice connection with you and your listeners. <laughs> oh, thank you. I feel the same. Listeners, that's it for this week. Thank you so much for being loyal and supportive of the Bubble Hour. I am so happy to be here for you week after week. And uh, I would greatly appreciate it if you feel so moved as to review this on iTunes because that helps other people find us. Uh, some of you write in and offer to be on the show. That's great. I am now booking right as we record this. It is early April. I am booking into the summer months now for guests. So if you think that telling your story might be something you'd like to do in the summer, drop me a line, thebubblehour at gmail.com, and I will book a time for us to have a chat just like this so you can share your story. That's everything for this week, everyone. So until next time, take good care. Not proud, but that was me And when I face it I take back a little dignity Not looking for excuses I just want to be free from the power Weakness had on me In a dark corner is where shame lies to hide We think you're strong Cause you'll keep it on the side 
just stays and wait there to rob you of your pride. Turn the light on, turn the light on, you can shine. When you see the old, I did that, and I'm proud that that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. I'm not looking for excuses, I just want to be free from power. Just want to be free. 